Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to uh, Psalm 79. The preaching pattern that I have been following is to preach through a chapter in Job and then to preach from a chapter in the Psalms. Um, last time I preached through Job chapter 19. And so this morning our text is Psalm 79. We're just working our ways way through the book of Psalms, and uh, this is the one that comes to us this morning, Psalm 79 here, God's Word. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord? Will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name, for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion Come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God, of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you according to your great power, preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. It's not unusual for God's people, including you and me, to at any time be found dealing with some kind of crisis. Jesus himself has said each day has enough trouble of its own. And so every day there are troubles that we have that relate to uh, health, finances, relationships, work, etc. And the psalm before us is dealing with a crisis, I'm guessing, beyond anything that you and I ever have or will experience. Jerusalem has been destroyed by enemies. In the process, the people of Judah were slaughtered left and right. The land itself was destroyed. On top of that, the temple was destroyed. Imagine everything that is precious in your life being destroyed, your family, your possessions, and really any hope of even at any time getting back on your feet, all of it gone. And then on top of all of that, imagine our church building being knocked down into a rubbish heap, foreign soldiers destroying any and everything that has to do with our worship of the Lord. Psalm 79 here describes a time when the people of God experienced that kind of devastating loss. And while your difficulties lack, likely wax in comparison to what is being described here, yet we suffer, and whatever you are going through is certainly big to you. And every crisis, big or small, that you and I face can become a crisis of faith. Everything that we experience in terms of suffering in this life becomes 
the occasion, can become the occasion for our questioning God. It's very easy during a time of trial to sit as judge over God, where we complain to God and about God because we don't think we deserve what is happening to us. You maybe even murmur against God and you're angry with God over his will for you. You ask, where is God? Because you're convinced that what is happening is not something that God would allow if he really knew all things and was in control of all things. And so you speak about God and you think about God in ways that tear down his character. In the emotion of a moment of crisis, it happens that we doubt God's wisdom and his love and his power and his wisdom. And we do so in a sinful way that reflects a lack of faith. In Psalm 79, there's no doubt that the emotions of Asaph, the author of this psalm, are running high. The psalmist is struggling to understand God's plan for him and his people. And I think a question worth asking is, is this psalmist responding to this crisis in a sinful, disrespectful way? Is he uh, responding? Is Is he here demonstrating a lack of faith? that needs to be reprimanded. For we can recognize that there's a fine line between being confused and being angry. Being confused and asking questions of God as the psalmist does here is not sin, as long as you are not accusing God of wrongdoing. There's a fine line between wrestling with God and arguing with God. Wrestling with God, which I would argue is really what the psalmist is doing, is actually an act of faith. When you lay out before God the crisis that you are facing, call upon God accordingly to to act and to glorify himself by acting according to his promises. Arguing, on the other hand, is not about faith. Arguing has nothing to do with seeking God's glory. It has nothing to do with an honest desire to understand the things that are going on from God's perspective, but arguing is a self-centered insistence on getting your own way and to have your own will uh, take place. Wrestling with God, on the other hand, means going to God in a prayer, to to him in prayer, where yes, you openly and you honestly lay out your struggles, you even express what you believe that the Lord should do as a covenant God, but the main thing in all of it is your relationship with the Lord. The main thing is your desire that his will be done and not yours. Like the psalmist, when you face a moment of crisis, your main concern should be God's glory. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to wrestle with God, to to lay out the intensity of the crisis that's going on and to plead for him to respond, which we see the psalmist does. He says essentially, Lord, this is what is happening in my life, and he lays out the gory details. And then he goes on to ask, Lord, how does this tragedy bring glory to your name? Lord, what are unbelievers going to think about you because of what is happening to us as your children? Lord, act in accordance with your revealed will to be merciful and gracious towards your people. And Lord, act in accordance with your righteous character, which means judging those who persecute us out of hatred for you. It's always right to ask the Lord to act in accordance with his character as he himself has revealed it in his word. Lord, be who you've said you are. In the psalmist, he also uses what we might call a tactic. 
to get God to act and to help that I think is worth uh, following as an example. Um, Manipulation is too strong of a word, but it is a word that comes to mind where the psalmist essentially tells God, if you act to preserve your people and destroy your and our enemies, then we will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise, which is how the psalm ends. If you think about it, that's a very good tactic to get God to grant us our requests. For what does the Lord desire above all things? Is it not to be glorified? Is it not his primary will in having created us that we would give him praise and thanks? Is it not then right to expect the Lord to do those things that will lead us to praise and to thank him? Of course, the important thing is that we speak truthfully from the heart with a genuine desire for the Lord's glory. I'm not talking about here manipulation that involves deception or trickery or thinking that we can put pressure on God into doing our will. I'm talking about having a love for the Lord that compels us to be thinking about the different ways that God can bring glory to his own name. The problem is that sometimes things happen to us that seem utterly contrary to God's glory, things that seem contrary to God's revealed will. At the heart of the psalmist's struggle is trying to understand God's purposes and what has happened to God's people. And you may be yourself wondering what good the Lord plans to bring out of the circumstances that are going on in your life. Things perhaps seem to be against you. Things are going on that perhaps seem incompatible with covenant fellowship with God. Well, let's turn to this psalm and consider it in greater detail and consider, first of all, what has happened, uh, particularly the crisis that is prompting this psalm, and then let us consider the psalmist's struggle of faith and learn from his struggle the spiritual lessons that can be applied to our lives. So we have, first of all, in verses 1 through 4, the crisis which the people of God are facing. It's not difficult to see that these verses are about the destruction of Jerusalem, and yet there's no mention of the specific enemy that has come against Jerusalem, and so there's question about what historical event is here in view. The most obvious event would be the destruction of Jerusalem that took place in 586 B.C. through um, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And yet there are other scholars who will argue that the psalm was written much later and that this psalm is about the destruction of Jerusalem that took place through the Syrian king Antiochus Epiphanes. I believe that the destruction uh, that's referred to here would be that under King Nebuchadnezzar, but Antiochus Epiphanes also did quite a, uh, you know, he brought about great destruction uh, to Jerusalem and to the temple. And the fact is, Jerusalem uh, over the years suffered a number of devastating defeats. And uh, what our psalm describes is an attack that could fit several of them. Well, verses 1 through 4 tell us what happened. We learn that the land has been invaded by the nations. Uh, The nations have come into your inheritance, Uh, verse 1. These are foreigners. These are Gentile peoples who do not know God. They are unbelievers. The psalmist phrases what these nations have done in a very interesting way. He says that they have come into your inheritance. They have come into God's inheritance. Uh, 
That, I hope you can recognize, is covenantal language. Judah was God's inheritance in the sense that Judah, the people, as well as the land, belonged to God. The Jews were special objects of God's favor. Israel was chosen out of all of the nations of the world to be God's people. Long before the 12 tribes of Judah even existed, God had promised to make Abraham into a nation with its own land, a peculiar people called out of the world by the grace of God and preserved as God's own. And so when the psalmist says that the nations have come into your inheritance, the psalmist is expressing how the covenant relationship that God had made with his people is now in question. The protective boundaries that God had erected around his people had apparently seemingly been withdrawn. It appeared that Judah was no longer special in God's sight. After all, what other conclusion could be drawn when these foreign invaders are now being allowed to run rampant over them and to invade what was God's and Judah's holy land? But notice, with all of this, what is the first thing that the psalmist grieves over? He says in verse 1, they have defiled your holy temple. Now, Psalm 74, we're in Psalm 79 this morning, but Psalm 74 the psalm that we considered some weeks ago, months ago. Um, In that psalm, the psalmist describes rather graphically how invading forces destroyed the temple. We read of how they used axes and they used hammers to tear down walls. They then burned what was left. And we know that under Nebuchadnezzar, that kind of level of destruction took place. Also under Nebuchadnezzar, all of the, the sacred valuables of the temple were taken to Babylon and were used in the temple worship of false gods. Now under Antiochus Epiphanes, the temple was once again pillaged. And to the Jews, what was worse was how Antiochus set up a Greek altar right within the temple and offered swine upon it. To the Jews, pigs were unclean. Nothing could have been more hateful. Nothing could have been more defiling than to have pigs offered as sacrifices in their temple. In both instances, the temple was defiled by haters of God We're trying to bring shame and disgrace to Judah's place of worship. And then they also laid Jerusalem itself in heaps. Think of it, the city of David, Zion, the capital city of God's covenant nation. So let us not minimize the disasters that can come upon God's own people. In his commentary on the Psalms, late James Montgomery Boyce, he writes this, he says, None of us has been witness to a disaster of this magnitude. And I would probably say that maybe we would qualify that by saying most of us have not been witness to a disaster of this magnitude. Bad things happen to us sometimes. We get sick or someone close to us dies or a fire destroys a home or we lose a job. But here everything that could go wrong has gone wrong. Everything that could possibly be destroyed has been destroyed. The destruction was political because the nation no longer existed. There was no king, no counselors, no people in authority, no army. The destruction was economic because the land was devastated. No one could earn a living. There was no one to buy anything that might be produced. And the destruction was social because entire families were wiped out. There was no one who had not lost a husband, son, father, mother, wife, or children in the conflict. Worst of all, the destruction was religious, for there was no temple 
and the worship of God had ceased throughout the land. It's obvious by the way that he says things that the psalmist is viewing all of this destruction from primarily a spiritual perspective. He's, he's struggling with the religious, the spiritual implications and ramifications of what has happened. Haters of God have been able to destroy all that is sacred, and that seems to tear at the legitimacy of the covenant itself. And actually, the psalmist's main focus here, unlike what we find in Psalm 74, is not even on the temple and on the city of Jerusalem. Here in our psalm, the psalmist appears to be especially upset about the murdering of God's people. And again, the psalmist is thinking covenantally, he's thinking spiritually. He refers to these people and their relation to God. He says, these, these dead bodies, God, are those of your servants, verse 2, the flesh of your faithful saints. Saints are holy ones. They are believers, those set apart unto God. It's God's chosen people, you see, who have been slaughtered. And the psalmist, still thinking spiritually, speaks of the reaction to all of this by their unbelieving neighbors. Notice verse 4, we have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked, derided by those around us. The wicked world is mocking Judah. In verse 10, the psalmist says, why should the nation say, where is their God? You see, the nations are using the defeat of Judah as ammunition against God. Jerusalem's destruction and the temple and the murdering of God's people, it's viewed as a wonderful occasion by God's enemies to laugh and to mock. Because of their victory, they are growing bolder in their rebellion against God. They're asking, where is Judah's God? Where is his power? They are rejoicing, you see, in Judah's shame and disgrace. And Judah's enemies understand as well as Judah does that God's reputation is at stake in what has happened And as terrible as all of this was for him, as well as his people personally, the psalmist's focus, we notice, also is on God. It's on his name. It's on his reputation, which comes out especially strong in verse 9. It's a plea for help, but notice that the reason why the psalmist wants help is beyond his own selfish desires. He says, help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. And it's this God-centered perspective that makes clear that the psalmist here is wrestling with God as an act of faith. So let us now consider the, the lessons that we can learn from the psalmist as his prayer in verses 1 through 4 turns from laying out the crisis to a new section beginning with verse 5, where the psalmist begins asking God to intervene. First, the psalmist asks, how long will this punishment last? His actual words are, how long, O Lord? Will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? These are perfectly appropriate, respectful questions to ask of our God. The psalmist, um, I don't believe, is complaining. I guess it's possible that those particular words could be asked in a complaining way. I don't believe he's complaining. He isn't I don't believe shaking his fist at God and arguing that what is happening is unfair or unjust. But these questions are the psalmist's way of expressing that he's hurting and that he is hoping that this punishment will not go on much longer. Psalmist is not like the modern evangelical of today who would say that God never gets angry. You'll hear people say that. Or they'll, they, it's very common to say God has nothing to do with the hard times that we as Christians go through. The psalmist here assumes God's sovereignty over Judah's situation. 
And yes, not every hardship is directly related to our sin, as we've been seeing in our study of Job, yet the psalmist here knows that what is happening to Judah, what's happening in this particular situation of Psalm 79, is because God is displeased with the sins of his people. This is chastening. This is hardship due to sin. Remember how God had sent one prophet after another to warn the people of this coming judgment, calling them to repentance. In the end, the psalmist knows that God is behind what has happened, that the only way things can be restored to normal is by God restoring his favor through atonement for sin. Meanwhile, the psalmist calls upon God to punish the wickedness of these unbelieving Enemies who are the willing agents against God's people. Notice verses 6 and 7. Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name, for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Verse 10. Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Verse 12. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. So the psalmist is not saying, Lord, we should not be punished. We should not be experiencing this. He's not saying that. But he is saying that these enemies of Judah, who are in reality enemies of God, also deserve to be punished and for a different purpose. The Bible reveals God to be a God of vengeance against all wickedness. The Lord hates murder. He hates all injustice. He is opposed to all rebellion against his authority. And what can be more rebellious than seeking the destruction of God's people? It's never wrong to ask God to act in accordance with his revealed will, especially when the causes of justice and righteousness are at stake, especially when the cause of his glory in and through his church is at stake. Today, we ought to be praying that the blood of our martyred brothers and sisters in Christ would be avenged. It brings glory to God when the devil and his followers are humbled and stopped in their evil designs against God's body. We need to pray for justice. We need to pray for righteousness. And let us take stock of the fact that praying for this justice is something that we really can only do because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Anytime we call upon God to stop sinners or to destroy sinners, we need to be very careful. We need to first step back and ask ourselves where we stand with the Lord. And what I mean is that we ought not to be like those who think that they're somehow perfect, not deserving of judgment quite like others are. If we call down judgment on those we consider to be wicked, we must not do so in pride. We must not think of ourselves as better than others. The contrary, let us recognize that it's only because of the forgiveness of our sins through Jesus Christ, granted to us by God's grace through faith, it's only through Christ that we can escape God's judgments. To call down judgment on sinners and their sin would be a death warrant for all of us, except for the gospel of Jesus Christ. For God's word tells us we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And he warns us in his word of his wrath against those who break his commandments as we do. But God warns us in order to drive us to Christ for salvation. He tells us of his grace by which he has made a place of escape from his justice and wrath, sending his son to die for us, 
to meet all of the holy requirements of his law for us in our stead. He calls us to repentance. He calls us to faith in Christ that we may then benefit from the Lord's sacrifice and obedience. And the word of God assures us, the good news is that if you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you are forgiven. You have nothing to fear in terms of God's wrath or judgment. It's only when we understand the seriousness of God's wrath, the, the, the reality of his justice, and then understand what Jesus had to suffer on the cross in order to deliver us from that judgment, it's only then that we will have the right attitude when we pray for judgment on God's enemies. This is not something that you and I should do lightly. It, it's not a joke. It's something that we are to, to call down uh, on the enemies of God, understanding that we're calling down this judgment for the sake of Christ and his glory. It's right to plead for vengeance. The enemy is an enemy of Christ and his body. And when this enemy is one whose wickedness will not stop without intervention by God. I do think that when we are considering praying for judgment on God's and our enemies, we need to keep in mind that there is a difference between the Old and New Testaments in God's plan of salvation. In the Old Testament, there was not a universal call of the gospel to all nations. It was not the calling of God's people in the Old Testament to seek and to pray for the salvation of all Gentile peoples. They were, in fact, often told by God to destroy unbelieving nations. Well, why? Because at that time, God had few to none of his elect in those nations. He had determined to bypass those nations with his grace and to destroy them in their sins. In other words, in the Old Testament, the destruction of these enemies was God's revealed will, and thus it was right to pray for victory over them. But what about in the New Testament? Now in the New Testament, we are in an era in which God has extended the call of the gospel to all nations. He has told us he has his elect in every tribe and nation. And so when there is an enemy of the church, whether an individual or on a larger scale, an organization, or even a nation, we pray that these enemies will be stopped. But as New Testament Christians, we pray lovingly for the salvation of these enemies. Now, not all of these enemies are going to be converted, but we can pray that God will then, in that case, stop their wickedness somehow, even by death, if necessary, but we leave all vengeance to God. We are no longer to attack ungodly people. We are people who, whose weapons are spiritual. The third request that the psalmist makes of the Lord speaks of an awareness of sin, in fact, and, and the need for God's grace, personal need. The psalmist makes a humble request for the forgiveness of sins. So this is a, this is a, a humble stance that he's taking toward the Lord and toward these enemies. Verses 8 through 9, do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Psalmist is very aware of the fact that he and the people of God he is representing in this psalm are sinners who deserve judgment. He's not arguing that the judgment that has come upon them and the destruction of Jerusalem and the loss of life and the loss of the temple um, is unjust. No, they have done wrong. 
The psalmist prays on behalf of God's people that God will be merciful, that he will not hold their sins against, against them. He appeals to God as their covenant. God is the God of the gospel. And notice that the psalmist doesn't here speak uh, uh, as though God can just overlook their sins. He understands their sins deserve punishment. Atonement must be made, and he pleads for God to provide atonement. And that, of course, we know was provided through Jesus Christ. By confessing sin in this way, it's clear that our psalmist is not a self-centered, proud individual calling down judgment on God's enemies because he thinks he's better than them and somehow worthy of God's blessings. But he knows clearly, as we must never forget, that our relationship with the Lord, that indeed we have a fellowship and friendship. For the Lord has set us apart from the world that all of this is of grace. Without Christ, we would be an enemy of God, and we would be without any hope of forgiveness and mercy. But as it is, we have been set apart. By grace, we are his chosen people, and our sins have been taken. They have been paid for by our Savior, Jesus Christ. Atonement has been made. It's on the basis of what God has done and on the basis of God's own gospel promises that we can, as the psalmist here does at the end, we can know that we are God's people. We are the sheep of his pasture. It's on the basis of what God has done to make us his that we can pray for deliverance and help. And even as those deserving chastening for the sins that we commit, we can still know that we belong to our covenant God and can expect his protection. It's an amazing thing what Christ has accomplished for us. And at the heart of this psalm is the truth that what happens to us reflects upon God. So closely does God associate himself with us in love and in the covenant. And so we pray for forgiveness to the glory of God's grace. And we pray for our enemies to be stopped to the glory of God's power and grace. We pray for God's help in our struggles to the glory of God so that we can then respond to him and to his deliverance with thanksgiving and praise. And so may it be that in our struggles we are more concerned with God's glory than our own personal comfort. And may you and I also rejoice that because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because of this atonement, God is near and we can expect that he will help. His love for us in Christ brings glory to his name. He wants to be known as a God of mercy and grace. So let us pray then for what we know to be God's will. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we go through our own trials of faith, each one. And Father, we pray that we would respond appropriately. We, Lord, pray that you might grant us relief and deliverance, help, the help that we need. And uh, Father, we will praise you. We will thank you if you would be pleased to do that. We, Lord, thank you for your covenant. We thank you for the fact that it is an unconditional covenant that does not depend upon our performance. It does not depend upon us becoming sinless people. It depends upon your grace. It depends upon the atonement that you have provided in Christ. We thank you for setting us apart and bestowing your grace upon us. Lord, were it not for your grace, we would be your enemies. We would be worthy of your judgment. We thank you that you have brought us to yourself, and yet we see those around us who have not been turned from their sins, who are yet in that state of rebellion, who hate you, who hate us. We, Lord, pray that these enemies would be turned.
for your glory. We pray for their salvation. We thank you, Father, for that amazing way and how you can turn the heart most hardened of sinners to become your people, your servants. Uh, Father, we pray for that. We pray that no matter what, those who oppose you, those who hate you and your, your body, who hate Christ, Lord, will be stopped. We pray for righteousness. We pray for justice. Father, we pray as those who have experienced your grace and who have experienced what it is to know your justice being taken through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are a thankful people. And we pray, Lord, that this psalm will give us great encouragement through the struggles of life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.